Welcome to the Youth Sports Safety Update podcast, produced by the Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program in Jacksonville, Florida. The Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program, or JSMP, is dedicated to youth sports safety through awareness, advocacy, and injury prevention. JSMP is also the managing partner of the Florida Alliance of Sports Medicine, or FASMED, which is a statewide coalition of sports medicine physicians who are engaged in promoting the highest level of high school sports safety through education, awareness, and access to medical resources to keep kids safe. I'm your host, Jim Mackey, a certified athletic trainer with over 50 years of experience in a variety of sports healthcare settings. Our guest today is a non-operative sports medicine physician who enjoys treating runners, sports-related concussions, as well as a broad range of conditions. He is a physician who is passionate about teaching others and helping his patients remain active while recovering from injury or illness. Please welcome Dr. Mark Halstead, a professor in the Department of Orthopedics and Pediatrics at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome, Dr. Halstead. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So you have a field that's very broad, and yet uh, what's the focus of your current work as a a physician? Yeah, so I do a clinical practice. I uh, work out of Washington University in St. Louis, and uh, I partner with the St. Louis Children's Hospital. And so I see patients of a a wide variety of ages. The vast majority of my patients that I see in clinic are the pediatric and adolescent population. That's probably about 80% of my practice. And, um, you know, I basically... I'll do various evaluations of all sorts of different injuries. I have uh, clinical and research interest, um, like you mentioned, in uh, runners and uh, stress fractures in particular, and then certainly concussions. That's kind of one of my my big areas of passion uh, from an education standpoint and also a, a clinical setting. And then have different roles covering teams in the area. So I work with a local high school. I work with our MLS team um, and then one of our colleges here. Okay, with stress fractures, we'll come to back back to those in a minute as uh, cross-country season will be starting again here soon. So um, you're the host of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Uh, share with us a little bit of what your focus is with that, why that's important to you, and, and what kind of messages are you seeking to bring to your audience there? Yeah, you, you mentioned I, I like to uh, to teach and educate, and I was looking for something as kind of a different venue or a different avenue to do some education to sports medicine professionals. And there really wasn't a podcast at the time when I um, was thinking about putting something together. Uh, it's actually interesting how I, uh, the person who produces my podcast is actually a friend of mine from high school. Uh, we both went to high school in Wisconsin, and we wound up serendipitously ending up about five miles apart from each other in Missouri. Uh, so it's kind of weird that, uh, that, uh, we wound up, uh, being so close together, uh, from being technically far apart, um, for a while there. And, uh, he had been bugging me for a long time. He says, you know, you really got to get your message out there, get your story out there of what you do. Cause he has a podcast network and I'm like, ah, you know, we'll think about it. I had done college radio when, when, uh, I was in, uh, college at the university of Wisconsin. So I, you know, being behind the mic was not something that was uh, foreign to me, but I really wanted to just have an avenue to just talk more about just various pediatric sports medicine topics. Um, just being that my background as a pediatric sports medicine physician. So we, we cover a variety of things. Um, we cover, you know, just general medical issues related to sports. We'll cover orthopedic topics. We do uh, something called a research review where we'll go through several articles related to a topic. My big thing this year, I've been trying to highlight um, stories more. Um, I've been really, you know, interested, and maybe this is just getting older as well, of, of having people be able to tell their stories and um, really just kind of let people know 
their background in sports medicine. So I've highlighted some people this year who uh, are, are kind of people who've founded pediatric sports medicine in a way. Um, I've interviewed a couple people uh, this past uh, episode that I had. I had Stephanie Kuzidam, who um, probably the athletic training world is very familiar with for who's uh, founded the Safer Sidelines uh, kind of effort talking about sudden cardiac death um, in athletes. So it's, it, it covers a whole wide spectrum of things. It's a very interesting podcast. I did get to listen to it the other day when you were talking about concussions. And uh, I want to get Stephanie on as well. She's been a, in a hero. And uh, there, there's just a lot of, I like the idea of stories. I do think people like to hear stories. And um, I'm an old guy, so I've got a lot of stories, but people need to hear other people's stories, not all of mine. Mm-hmm. And that. So um, let's talk about uh, shin splints and uh, stress fractures and things like that. Um, as a hit it from whatever angle you want to hit it from preventative as these runners are getting going or they see these early signs and symptoms, what uh, what should they be concerned about and kind um, of what turns things into stress fractures, do you feel? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting area. Um, it's an area that, you know, has had some decent research. Um, there's some stress injuries that we see that we really don't have a lot of research on. And that's um, the multi-center group that I'm working with uh, through uh, the PRISM Foundation, the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Group. Um, we uh, have tried to tackle some of these unique bone stress injuries, such as the navicular stress fracture and femoral neck stress fractures, just trying to get more information, especially in the adolescent population. But you know, I, I've personal experience with them. I've, I've run since the age of 12. Um, and, uh, I kind of talk to my patients as the runners is that, you know, if you live long enough, odds are, you're probably going to get a stress fracture from running at some point. And, you know, they're not necessarily all bad. Uh, I mean, I had a, a stress fracture in my tibia both times. One, when I was running in uh, high school track, um, that I had, uh, because my coach tried to make me both a distance runner and a hurdler, and that didn't work very well. And uh, another one, I was in my 30s and I have been running a much lower volume. And and I just my daughter just recently had a stress fracture in her tibia. Uh, my wife's had one from running when she was in college as a runner and her foot. So we, we've got that in our family. So I know that injury near and dear. But, you know, there's there's the question of when you talked about you asked about shin splints. You know, I think a lot of us have kind of gotten away from the the thought that shin splints leads into a stress fracture. I think it's it's really truly a separate entity. At least that's the way I think about it. But, you know, when we, we think about that clinically, and this is kind of the key when I give lectures on this, especially if I give lectures to the athletic training population, you know, the, the distinction there is it, it's really the concern is pain that gets progressively worse as you go through activity. Shin spins oftentimes will tend to ease up as runners run. Um, but you know, if it's there and it keeps getting worse and it's getting worse and worse, the longer that someone does run or impact activities, cause it's not obviously an injury that's unique just to runners or cross country or track athletes. We see it in any athlete that's doing a fair amount of running and soccer is a big offender of these two. Cause I consider that running with kicking the ball every once in a while. So we, we have to think about that. If, if someone who's have progressively increasing pain, that's not going away. It's there with activity, pain with stairs. That's a uh, going up and down stairs. That's a big hallmark for me of distinguishing a stress fracture from shin splints, just from a clinical history standpoint, doing a single leg hop um, where you just do a hop on one leg. And if someone gives you kind of that, that look that you're crazy to ask me to do this, I can pretty much guarantee you that person's probably got a stress fracture if their, their exam and history is appropriate. So, so just things to think about with those types. And we really need to take care of those, but we've, we've kind of shift our, our spectrum a little bit. We, we call these bone stress injuries now rather than just stress fractures, because we know that there's a spectrum of these injuries. They don't all 
uh, end up as a stress fracture. You can have a lesser injury to the bone that's still a stress injury to the bone, but hasn't progressed to the true crack in the bone. And and I think that's probably where a lot of those things that are still being lumped into shin splints right now probably sit. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, obviously, get a good pair of shoes, progressive training, uh, good training techniques, and just uh, do everything you can do to avoid them. But when it does uh, happen, uh, seek the care of a good athletic trainer and a sports medicine physician. Mm-hmm. So you've written a lot of papers regarding sports-related concussions in children and adolescents. Uh, what's your concern today regarding these concussions, and how do you believe the recent uh, consensus statement has brought to light uh good aspects that can benefit uh, both parents and practitioners out there. Yeah, we just uh, reviewed the recent uh, concussion documents uh, a few weeks ago on our podcast. And I think it's uh, from a standpoint of how does it help parents and athletes? I don't know that it's dramatically changed things as far as directly related to them in the sense of some different assessments that have been added to the new assessments. I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, it's, we've revolutionized concussion care with the the updated statement. I think we've seen a lot of those big jumps uh, over the last decade or so. And now we're, we're, it's kind of fine tuning and tweaking a little bit. So as we get some better assessments to try and help us like the dual task gate uh, and other types of things for assessments to try and uh, look at concussion, I think that's really the big key. Uh, as far as, you know, other things, management and, and things like that, I think the other big um, part of this is really we've seen the decent research that shows that light physical activity is actually beneficial to someone's recovery. We're, we're long gone from the days of cocooning, although I still know that that gets done way too often uh, out there um, as far as putting people in dark rooms or just telling them that they should uh, really not do any physical activity or any mental activity at all. And that's really not what we're trying to focus on. So I think that's kind of the big change. I think my big worry and concern about concussions these days is I really honestly think we've gone away from a lot of the general public being concerned about the injury itself. And I've kind of likened this, I've kind of called it concussion overload in the past when I've talked to people about it, because I think we've we've talked so much about it that I, I think people, it's just in the background now for a lot of people in their minds. They don't, I see a lot of athletes come into my office that aren't as serious about the injury. They don't think it's as big of a deal. Um, or even five or 10 years ago, that was a whole different ball of wax. Everybody was very, very fearful about concussions and talking about them. And now it, it doesn't seem like people are as scared about them um, or as worried about the effects of brain injury. And it's kind of, it's puzzled me a little bit. I'm also seeing a lot more kids that are playing through the injury again now. Um, that wasn't happening maybe five or 10 years ago. So I, I really don't know what's changed psychologically in the general public's mind about concussions, but, but I'm seeing this trend a little bit just clinically in my office where I get a little worried that we're, we're just not taking the injury as a general public as seriously anymore. So are you seeing the youth just not self-reporting? Is that one thing you're, you're saying there? Yeah. And also just not necessarily caring that they're still playing through these injuries. So uh, it's, yeah. And, and just seeming like it's, it's not that big of a deal. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a scary trend that I've been seeing over the last couple of years with, with athletes. And I don't know if this is a post pandemic thing where people are just, you know, just because we're back being active, like, you know, it's a big deal, no big deal anymore. You know, um, uh, it, the health issues really don't seem to be, uh, driving a, a lot of concern anymore for some of these athletes. Right. With, um, 
with some of the higher level athletes I've seen, um, they are a little bit, they're doing better at self-reporting because they were, I always call it professional athletes were not reporting. Now they are self-reporting, but we're seeing on that youth side, sometimes it's because of the culture or the, uh, let's call them the parent coach doctor uh, person that, uh, hey, I got through it. You can get through it. Uh, it's not that it's not that big a deal, but it is. And uh, so we've got to continue to get the message out there, not in a create fear, but in a uh, this is something that it is, it is real and does have to be addressed. And as I was discussing with uh, uh, Dr. Bruglio last week, the uh, con- the first case of a female CTE, you know, mm-hmm. and death uh, was reported in that recently. So, you know, it's happening all and the uh, the women's aspect of concussion has got to be even more uh, researched in the future. And, and of all ethnicities, all types and shapes and forms, everybody's got to be looked at with that. So it's uh, definitely still out there and hopefully people will take it uh Seriously, and especially as we get back into this collision sport um, part of the year that's coming up. And so we'll, we will see what happens. Kids got to go back, uh, return to learn is a parallel parallel trajectory, so to speak, along with return to play. So would you address that, why that's important and uh, some key points parents, educators may need to know? Yeah, I think this is an area that, you know, we do pay attention to. I was a little uh, personally a little disappointed in in some of the things that came out of the concussion statement it it um and I joked about this with Dr. Tina Master on my podcast about just the fact that it it seemed like you know the emphasis was that the vast majority of kids I think it was 90% or something that they quoted in there um wouldn't need return to learn things uh beyond about a week or so which that's definitely not what I see in my practice because we know that you know concussions not not everybody gets better in, in a week I mean if you just go by statistics and in, in the age group that I'm talking about pediatric and adolescent only 50% are going to be back to feeling their normal self within the 7 day period so if we're saying that you know 90% aren't going to need academic supports after a week. That doesn't make a lot of sense just to me from a clinical standpoint from what we're seeing. But in the big picture of things, you know, we do know that obviously there's the physical effects of uh, concussion, but then there's also the cognitive effects. And so if we're in a school setting, you know, it makes very common sense that, hey, if we're having struggles with our cognitive function, we're going to maybe need some supports with things. But I, I think this is also an area where we've kind of taken it to some extremes. And I think we're a little behind with return to learn compared to where we are with return to physical activity. We've been a lot more proactive now about working towards getting people more active and that it's really not necessarily harmful for someone's recovery. And I still think we're in a state right now where people are still um, very nervous about the cognitive load and how that's going to potentially worsen or lengthen concussion recovery. And we're not really seeing that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to why that would be any different than physical activity. You know, I, I, I've liked what some people have been writing about lately with our approach to concussions is we need to kind of think of it like a Goldilocks phenomenon in the three bears where we want the just right. We don't want too hot. We don't want too cold. So we don't want to be doing unrestricted things, but we also don't want to be limiting everything to an extreme either. If we, we put it in there in, a, in an area where our body is tolerating what's going on 
and we're listening to our body and hey, when our symptoms flare up, maybe we need to back off from a cognitive standpoint. But there, there shouldn't be a reason why we need to say you can't look at a screen or you can't go to school or you can't do any sort of cognitive load at all. You can't take a test. You can't read a book. Those are all things you can do, but you may be having more of a challenge with doing those after a concussion. We just need to think about that in a moderation approach rather than necessarily, yeah, just go back and do whatever you want without any, uh, without any supports at all. And let's not, you know, totally restrict you and, and say you have to stay home until your headache's gone kind of thing. And, and again, I think we're still a little bit behind with return to learn just because we don't have as much research there as we do with return to activity. Um, but, but I think we're going to get there. All right. We're speaking today with Dr. Mark Halstead, a professor in the Department of Orthopedics and Pediatrics at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. He, he has a emphasis in sports medicine. So as a clinician, physician, this, there's a new thing that came out with the uh, concussions that affects physicians too, but the SCOT, the Sports Concussion Office Assessment Tool. So what's your, this is, oh, this is one more piece of paper to fill out as a clinician. <laughs> well, how, how does this help you and uh, encourage your other physicians out there and, and educate us on what that involves and why it's important? Yeah, we, we just what we needed another tool with another uh, another fancy name to it. So <laughs> in the big picture of things, I think a lot of people who do sports concussion care in the office do a vast majority of the things that are on the scout at some point or another in assessment. But I, you know, this is where the, the challenge comes in. And I think there there was some pushback at our AMSSM meeting. There was one of the physicians who was on the um, on the uh uh, the concussion and sports writing group who actually was very uh, opposed uh, vocally to the idea of the scout, just saying that it, it was not something that he felt was going to be practical because it, it takes, you know, probably at least 45 minutes if you're going to do the full thing to go through that. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's difficult in a busy clinical practice um, unless that's all you're doing is just concussion care. And, you know, the way my practice works um, that's, that would not fly uh, as far as keeping my clinic flow going. You know, our concussion visits are already pretty involved. And for me, the biggest key of, I think, the visits is not necessarily all those individual assessments. It's actually um, focused assessments based on symptoms and then lots and lots of education. Um, so I have met, my probably my visits are a lot more of discussing how do we approach each of the areas that people are struggling with rather than necessarily doing these long assessments of things. And, and my approach always has been, if I have these tools, well, wh what am I going to do different with it when I have the results? So as an example, if I'm going to do having a patient in my office count words um, or give me a, a set of 10 words and then we're going to repeat those. Well, what, what do I do if they don't do well on that test? What, what does that change my clinical practice or management? Wow. And so that's that's why when we look at each of these tools and we add these things on here, the big thing for me is the utility of them is, is, is it going to change what I ultimately do? And that's, you know, I think some of the pushback that people have with things like the SCAT as an example on the sidelines, especially for athletic trainers is, you know, if someone comes over and they're clearly concussed, do I have to go through a full SCAT assessment on this person if I've already diagnosed them with a concussion based on their clinical assessment? Because the bottom line, we still come down to it's a clinical judgment, even regardless of what you score on the SCAT. I mean, you probably have experience with this, too, where if you do a SCAT assessment on someone and you have happen to uh, fortuitously have a baseline on them. I've taken care of many concussed athletes who do just as well, if not better than their baseline when they do a SCAT assessment. 
does that mean that that person didn't have a concussion? Absolutely not. I mean, I had a player completely knocked out um, on the field and they actually did better than their baseline on their, their post-injury assessment. So, mm-hmm. so I, you know, we have to still remember it's still clinical judgment. So I think it's helpful to know what, what tools out there we have and how can we use those but I don't know that it necessarily means that every single office assessment has to have everything on that scope done all at one visit, especially if someone's not having any issues. You know, I, wh- why do I need to do a whole bunch of of vestibular things if the person has no vestibular sy- symptoms whatsoever? So I think it's just it's making sure you know what the resources out there, what are good tools to use and how to use, as we always talk about with concussions, the tools in your toolbox. Right. And it's learning and knowing who your athletes or who your patients are. Yeah, um, for sure. I, we've all got the funny stories from giving assessments and uh, give me the months of the year backwards. Uh, I can't even give them to you forwards, sir. I don't know all of them. You know? right. So it, it, you, you run into all kinds of things or uh, I couldn't tell it to test. I couldn't do this sobriety test and balance test in the first place, you know? So anyway, but it's, 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 it's a, it's a program to help you in some ways. And that. mm-hmm. so that's, that's good. So you get this kid with a concussion and uh, the parents, maybe they're not taking it as serious as they should. But what is uh, how do you explain to them some of the follow up care that's necessary or some of the longer term effects of concussions? Uh, Because this is young developing brain. So. Yeah. And that, that does become a big concern. I think that's probably out of anything. That's the biggest concern that most uh, parents at least have in the office. I don't think many of the kids have that uh, concern yet because we know that most adolescents think they're indestructible and they don't, they aren't thinking about what 20 or 30 years down the road may mean to them based on their decisions that they made today, uh, whether playing through or or having multiple concussions. But I, I think what we're starting to see more and more and more with regards to long-term effects like CTE as an example is that it's not necessarily the concussive injuries that are the problem, but it's the repetitive blows to your head that accumulate over the course of someone's lifetime that are probably the biggest risk factors for developing CTE. So, you know, again, when you're starting contact football at the age of six or seven, um, and you're going to continue that through high school and then potentially continue that onward, that's a, a large amount potentially uh, of hits to your head, depending on what position you're playing and what have you. And, and I think that's where the bigger concern lies. And that, again, maybe that's where with some of that messaging coming out that the concern for the actual concussion has become less with patients, but you know, in the big picture things, it's still a brain injury as we talk to patients about in the office. So we still need to take them seriously. But I think, you know, as far as follow-up goes, uh, you know, I don't know if necessarily every single person that has a concussion needs long-term follow-up for for their concussion, but I, I do think it's appropriate and important to make sure that we are following up with these patients and making sure that they're getting through, uh, getting to the point where they're symptom-free and back to their baseline feeling before we let them go back to participate. And everybody may do that differently. Um, the way I approach that in my practice is I do weekly emails with my patients and they will send me an email update on how they're doing. Um, rather than seeing them back in the office on a weekly basis, it's just more convenient for everybody to be able to do it that way. And then we we may have them come back in the office or maybe, you know, if it's a, a kid that's at a school that has an athletic trainer that I can use the athletic trainer to help assist with our return to play process, then then certainly we'll d- utilize that uh, as well. Because that there's obviously, you know, you guys are 
our our extensions from our our sports medicine practices for sure and and have that hands on and I and I like to use the athletic trainer for hearing the things behind the scenes that they may not be telling me yeah, <laughs> um, on email or they're telling their buddies hey I still got a headache but I want to play in the game tonight so I'm going to tell I'm not going to tell anybody that I still have the headache kind of thing so okay is there a CPT code for that email <laughs> there isn't no so that that is <laughs> it is something unfortunately that yeah it does consume a, a chunk of my time but um, I've just found it to be a more efficient way of doing my practice patients like it um, it makes sure that we're it's providing some accountability to patients too that they are needing to take this seriously and they need to follow up with us uh, and make sure and it, it really it relieves a burden on uh, by doing it through the email it relieves a burden on my medical assistants and office staff so they don't have to take care of these calls and then we go back and forth as we know these days most people don't answer their phone when they see a strange number. So then we're just going back and forth. So the email is a nice way for me to be able to, to, to document too, because I can actually sure. put copy into the chart exactly what the patient told me um, yeah. that they've already typed out rather than having to translate that. So it's just, it's worked well for my practice for, for a good decade now. That's good. You're allowing them that screen time too. Correct. So, correct. Yes. All right. So um, for the athletic trainers and the physicians out there, what are your, um, Three, four, five, uh, you're on the sideline. What are the uh, quick and easy uh, first assessments that you may give uh, when you suspect a concussion? Just what are you, what are your, you know, the NFL has the Maddox questions and things like that. But what do you, what do you look for the first four or five things? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's looking what happened first. So that means you got to be paying attention to what happens on the field. We know that doesn't always happen if you're assessing somebody else at the time and someone else goes down, then it becomes a little bit more of a challenge. And that's the hard part with with high school and under uh, or and even at the collegiate level, we don't necessarily have the the benefit of video replay that I can go back and I can look at what happened with the injury right right then and there. So so it is relying a little bit on on the history. So I, I think the first part is asking them what happened, you know, getting their story first. Uh, I, I think the worst question that can be asked is, are you fine? Um, I, I that's like they're the usually going to tell you that I'm I'm straight. I'm straight. <laughs> exactly. That's the bane of my existence, whether a coach or an athletic trainer or a physician asks that question. Are you OK? Are you fine? Um that, that to me, you know, fine to me is not a hundred percent. Are you back to your normal self? Do you feel like your normal self? That is a big key question for me for recovery. That's a big key question for me when we're doing that, because again, we know what athletes are going to tell us uh, is that they're, they're fine, regardless of what the injury may be. It could be a knee injury, whatever, even though they're limping. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good to go. Yeah, no, you're not. Um, so that that's, I think the big key number one is making sure you're asking the appropriate questions. Again, it, the, the bottom line still comes down to symptoms. So I think the hard part for a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the sideline assessments is we want to be able to get things done quick. Cause you know, you know, a lot of things can happen, especially if it's a football sideline, uh, where there may be another injury, the next play, whereas some other sports, you know, there can be a big long delay between injuries. You know, there's not as much bang for your buck injury wise, so to speak, um, in other sports besides football. Um, so I, I think it's it's making sure that you're asking the right questions, first of all. I think making sure that when you're going through symptom assessments, because that's, again, where a big key comes from is, is you know, have that paper uh, scat on the sideline that you can have the patient, like, fill it out and just say, tell me how you feel right now. Without, you know, again, the preconceived notions, probably most athletes are going to realize you're asking about a concussion, but just have them fill it out and see what they think rather than asking them, do you have a headache? Because again, when you go to yes and no questions for a lot of these things, the answer is oftentimes default going to be no, even though there may be a yes. So if you let them grade it out a little bit, that sometimes it, it, it 
you know, they, they don't know necessarily that, you know, it's it, a six and a two doesn't necessarily mean a difference to me. If you've got a headache, you got a headache, right? Um, so I think it, in that situation, I think that's important. I had a perfect example of a punter. You know, we don't think about um, the, the punters and the kickers getting uh, concussed very often, but I had one on a high school sideline. He got rocked. And uh, clearly he was concussed. There was no way I was letting him go back into play. And he came over, swore up and down on the sidelines to us that he was perfectly fine, perfectly fine. And he did not do well in his assessments and said he had absolutely no symptoms whatsoever. And then after we told him that he wasn't going to play, we had him fill out the concussions, uh, the, the, the symptom score there, and everything was super high. So again, it's one of those things that, you, know, you you just need to make sure you're you're advocating for the athlete um, and the athlete's health. Not necessarily you're looking out to get the person back into the game. Um, I mean, yes, that is a, a goal for us, but we have to prioritize the brain health first when we're talking about these concussion assessments. So I, I think it's just a matter of you know again just having your assessments. I don't have like a go to like you know, the, uh, doing a, a best on the sidelines is ideal or, um, doing, um, uh, the, you know, again, the words and stuff like that. I think the hard part there is again, I don't have a baseline for these kids, so I don't know what that information ultimately tells me. I mean, if they really, really do poorly on it, um, that's something that's where I do rely on my athletic trainers that I'm working with and partnering with on the sidelines is, Hey, is this kid acting like their normal self? If the, if a parent happens to be around, I may utilize the parent also, does this kid seem like he's normal? You know, the kid who's normally the quiet kid on the sideline that now all of a sudden I was all rubbing, running up and down being goofball or the kid who is normally the kid who's super, super rowdy on the sidelines that now is being really quiet and reserved and trying to shy away from everybody. Those are the ones that that spark my interest as, you know, something's out of the norm uh, for these kids. You know, I had the, the kid that um, said he was fine. Parent came down. Oh, he's fine. Doc said, just sit here for a minute. Five minutes later, he said, these lights and this noise are really bothering me right now. You know, so you knew wisdom just says, take your time, be patient. Yes, we want to get you back in the game, but I'm not trying to pull you out. I'm trying to protect you. And when it's safe, we'll we'll make a safe decision for you. So that's that's very important. So let's switch gears just a minute here. Uh, obviously, sudden cardiac arrest is big in the news these days. And uh, we again saw DeMar Hamlin highlighted just the other night on the SPs and, and his sports medicine team that took care of him and mm-hmm. worked together with that. So what do you what do you see today as far as any recommendations for the pre-screening of uh, athletes and uh it won't prevent everything, but it will help. But what, what are your recommendations there as a physician? Well, again, and this is, this is an area still of huge controversy uh, and the sports medicine world of, is the utility of, of doing pre-screening with things like EKGs or echocardiograms for athletes. Um, I, I think in the big picture things from a, a cost and um, a resource standpoint, I think it's it's a challenging endeavor to try and do that in with sports in our country uh, of doing every single of having every single athlete get an EKG and or echocardiogram. I think the most important part right now still comes down to our screening questions uh, on pre-participation exams. Uh, my mentor, David Bernhardt, who has been one of the um, lead authors with the pre-participation exam will always advocate that we should be treating our sports physicals like any other physical or any other physical, like a sports physical, I should say, where we're actually truly like asking those types of questions for every single kid. Cause every single kid ideally is an active kid. 
So there's nothing unique necessarily about sports that would increase the risk of sudden cardiac arrest in a kid who may have some condition um, that's there at a baseline. And, you know, the physical activity may provoke it, but it could be physical activity running around on a playground or um, physical activity. You know, I've gone on a family vacation and we're doing something super active and that puts us at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. So so I think it's important that we're making sure that we're establishing those those AHA questions um, on the pre-participation physical and making sure that those are asked about both of the parent and of the kid, because sometimes parents don't know some symptoms that kids may be experiencing, because as we know, kids don't always tell everybody everything, nor do they tell it in the appropriate way uh, or describe it the appropriate way. So I think it's it's important to make sure we're, we're doing those things. And I think, and this is, again, I, I think we really need to make sure that we are adequately teaching CPR to everybody. Um, I think it's, you know, uh, you know, my kids all had to do it as part of their, their class in school. However, if I actually asked my kids, could they comfortably do CPR and know what to do with an AED right now? I don't think they can, because I don't think we're getting, you know, the CPR training we're doing in schools. I don't think it's the same as what you'll get for going to a three or four hour course that you're going to do, um, you know, as a medical professional training to do CPR uh, and AED use. But I think it needs to be important that we have those things um, trained for everybody, regardless mm -hmm. of whether you're a medical professional or not, and having access to AEDs and making sure that they're available and in range of what the event is um, on a sideline or a field or a court, um, rather than, you know, having it locked away in a school somewhere. So we do have those protocols in place. Um, so that way we know that we, we have access. And, and again, it may not be the athlete. It may be a referee. It may be a fan in the stands, but if we have access to those tools quickly, we know how effective they are in saving a life. And I think that's just really important that we all have that background knowledge. Right. And we emphasize the, um, uh, a lot of practice of this as well. You can't just have the policies and procedures. You've got to practice them, rehearse them, and uh, utilize what we call a medical timeout to prepare before any activity and, and competition. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of preparation to be done right now. Uh, we uh, the the third H we look at is is heat, and mm -hmm. uh, so we encourage people with be prepared to know what goes on with heat uh, illness, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and how to uh, prepare properly for cold water immersion or whatever needs to be done with that. So uh, there's a broad range of topics we can continue to talk about, Dr. Halstead. This has been very helpful. Any any final messages you'd like to share or bring? Yeah, no, I just, I, I think, you know, this, I appreciate your, your podcast and, and, and what you're doing and bringing attention to things and, and talking to various individuals and, now, I think from my standpoint, it's just, you know, it is super hard to stay current with all the stuff that's going on out there in the world of sports medicine. So I think having whatever resources you can active or passive, you know, passive in the form of a podcast or passive in the form of, of you know, uh, or active in the form of you looking up and, and things of just for all of us that are in the world of sports medicine is just staying on top of what's current and, and making sure that we're adjusting our protocols, we're, we're making sure we're doing the right things. And, and again, making sure that we're thinking athletes health and safety first when we're, we're thinking about our assessments and decision-making and especially when it comes to return to play. Um, you know, as, as I always say, it, it's still just a game when we come down to talking about sports. Um, and there's a lifetime ahead for a lot of these individuals and, and there, some of our decisions can have a dramatic effect, um, uh, if we're not doing the, the proper protocols and things, uh, for these individuals for the rest of their lives. So I think it's just important that, 
we're all staying, trying to stay as current as possible. It's, it's a, it's a never ending fire hose of trying to get through that information, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, you know, whatever way you can, as far as trying to stay current is, is a good thing. Thank you very much, Dr. Halstead. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Youth Sports Safety Update. Our mission is dedicated to youth sports safety through awareness, advocacy, and injury prevention. Guests to the show are stakeholders in youth sports safety, and views and conclusions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the employees, administration, or associated staff of JSMP, and does not imply endorsement of any product, service, or opinion discussed. All material presented in this program is provided for information only and should not be construed as professional advice. Any use of this podcast without the express written consent of the Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program or the Florida Alliance of Sports Medicine is strictly prohibited. For more information and access to important resources on youth sports safety, visit our website at jaxsmp.com. The Youth Sports Safety Update is produced by the Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program, and your host and producer today is Jim Mackey. Join us again soon. Thank you, and please stay safe.